All right, everyone, let's get started here with another week. It is Monday, October 31st. Happy Halloween to everyone. I'm Mo Shwanunu, and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. We read all the news, or at least I try to, and read between the lines so you don't have to. It is just me here today for a solo edition. Jill will be back on Wednesday. Here's a bit of what we're following as we start another week here. I'll have the latest for you from South Korea, where there was that tragic, deadly stampede over the weekend. The Supreme Court today will be hearing cases that could mark the end of affirmative action after more than 50 years. The lead reporter over at CNBC on all things tech and media, Julia Borzin, will be joining me in this episode to also discuss the future of Twitter as Elon Musk, the world's richest man, took over the platform over the weekend. And I'll end with more on that image you might have seen circulating online of the sun literally appearing to smile at us. The photo is real and NASA has an explanation for it. But let's start with that tragic situation in South Korea. Officials there say they have identified nearly all of the victims of a deadly crowd crush during Halloween celebrations in the capital of Seoul. The incident left at least 153 people dead and another 82 injured. Two U.S. nationals are among the dead, according to the U.S. Embassy there. Uh, there were actually 24 nationals from 10 different countries killed in the crush. New details are emerging from the country as tens of thousands of people appeared to have been packed into a small alley late on Saturday night. Someone began to shout at the crowd to go forward. Others screamed to push back. Within moments, people began to fall like dominoes as the crowd began collapsing on itself down a sloping side street. The photos and videos from the scene are horrific. Hundreds of people crushed uh, in an area that was jammed with Halloween revelers. It all took place in an area called Itaewon. It sits in the center of Seoul and ranks among the city's most popular destinations for both locals and tourists. Authorities there say the tragedy likely resulted from terrible crowd control. It has raised questions over how South Korean officials had regulated the mass numbers who flocked to the Itaewon district to celebrate really the first in-person Halloween since the relaxation of COVID controls. Local officials had estimated that turnout could reach 100,000 people in that small area. Reportedly, according to the Wall Street Journal, there were only about 200 security personnel to deal with the 100,000 people. Most of the victims were young, many were female. Police say they're investigating whether the businesses and local authorities took proper safety precautions. They haven't said what might have caused the crowd to fall, but again, the reports are that some people were pushing one direction, others screamed to push back, and then the whole situation just collapsed on itself with tens of thousands of people just packed in to these very small crowded side streets. Back here in the U.S., there is a huge story we're watching out of the Supreme Court on Monday as the future of affirmative action in higher education hangs in the balance. The justices on the high court will be hearing arguments in two cases over race-conscious admissions at two prestigious universities, Harvard and the University of North Carolina. The two universities will be going back to back today, arguing before the court, defending their use of race in admissions as part of their overall criteria uh, to have a more diverse student body. Harvard and UNC are supported by a host of other schools as well as business organizations. They argue that diversity is essential to the educational experience and that the only effective way to ensure diversity is to make it an explicit part of the admissions process. On the other side here is a group called the Students for Fair Admissions, SFFA. They are backed by a number of conservative groups that argue that those schools approach violate constitutional protections 
and federal law against the use of race in admissions. They want the court once and for all to prohibit the use of race as an explicit criteria as part of getting into college. The use of affirmative action goes back more than 50 years, back to the 1960s, when admissions departments in universities started to use race as a factor to overcome historical shortfalls when, in many cases, uh, anyone of color was banned from a number of universities. But over the course of the past 20 years, the Supreme Court has started to send signals that it is ready to put a stop to those sorts of policies during a case about 20 years ago, back in 2003, the Supreme Court upheld affirmative action, but wrote in their decision that they foresaw a time about 25 years into the future where affirmative action would no longer be necessary. That 25 years, of course, would take us to the year 2028. It appears they're going to be making that call about five years earlier than they thought. We are coming off that blockbuster year last year, the first year where we saw the 6-3 conservative majority. That's one of the reasons why legal experts believe affirmative action is the next major uh, issue to go down as the court continues to assert uh, its interpretation of constitutional law. Something to keep in mind here is that the Harvard case and the UNC cases have made it to the Supreme Court at all. Lower courts actually upheld those schools' affirmative action policies, and if a majority of the Supreme Court thought those were the right decisions, they wouldn't have agreed to hear these appeals. The Supreme Court also took on the UNC case before the federal appeals court even had ruled, taking a case way faster than usual with no disagreement among lower courts. Remember, they all upheld affirmative action is widely seen as a sign the Supreme Court is ready to chip away at the affirmative action precedents of previous years, or as we've all learned with the Roe v. Wade decision, the court might be willing to go all the way and completely overturn it. You can live stream the court and hear their audio arguments starting at 10 a.m. Eastern. I'll include a link in the show notes. A reminder, the Supreme Court does not allow videos into the court, so you can, uh, this is something they brought on during COVID, live stream the audio uh, if you want to hear their arguments. And keep in mind, the Supreme Court will likely not rule on this or announce their decision on this uh, until late spring, summer. Typically, they're big blockbuster cases. The decisions come out in June. Okay, let's head back abroad here where we're watching a couple major foreign elections this week. The Israelis will have an election on Tuesday. I'll preview that for you tomorrow. In the meantime, the Brazilians had an election on Sunday. Lula da Silva is set to become the next president of Brazil. The leftists defeated his right-wing rival, Yair Bolsonaro, by a razor-thin margin. You might be familiar with Lula. He's actually the former president of Brazil. He served two terms. He won just under 51% of the vote. Uh, Bolsonaro mustered just over 49% and will be denied a second term in office. This was a fiercely contested competition. There was actually a first round of voting earlier this month. While neither took 50%, that then led to this runoff over the weekend. Brazil is dealing with a lot of issues right now, sky-high inflation, limited growth, rising poverty. Brazil actually just a few years ago was the sixth largest economy in the world. It is now the 12th largest economy in the world. Uh, Lula says he will support uh, poverty. He's also vowed to save the Amazon. Bolsonaro, during his last four years in office, has allowed a major level of development in agriculture and the cutting down of the rainforest, which is known as the Earth's lungs. The big thing to watch for in the coming days is whether Lula's razor-thin margin will hold and whether Bolsonaro will accept the result. Bolsonaro has for months claimed that Brazil's electronic balloting system is susceptible to fraud, and that would be especially true if he lost. Essentially, we've heard this before, if he lost... The election is not legitimate. Uh, bear in mind that Bolsonaro and former President Trump are very friendly uh, and tend to mimic each other's messaging. Uh, and so there are some concerns that uh, of what could take place in Brazil in the coming weeks 
could mimic what we saw in January of 2021 back here in the U.S. With all that in mind, President Biden congratulated Lula on Sunday and made a point in his message of calling them, quote, free, fair, and credible elections. As I mentioned, Lula is a former two-term president. He was actually initially blocked from running against Bolsonaro in the last election due to uh, corruption charges. Those corruption charges, actually, he was convicted on them. He was sent to jail. He was then released from jail. Those charges were thrown out due to a technicality, which allowed him to run again and apparently win last night. We will watch in the coming days and weeks if there's a peaceful transition of power in Brazil, which, by the way, population-wise, is the world's fourth largest democracy. The return of Lula also comes as there have been a number of countries in South America that have made a turn toward the left in recent elections. Colombia elected its first leftist president earlier this year. Chile and Honduras last year voted for left-wing politicians. Okay, let's come back here to the U.S. where we're continuing to follow the case of the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi. He continues to recover today in a San Francisco hospital after a brutal attack against him in the couple's home late, late Thursday night into Friday morning. A suspect on Friday, just after 2 a.m., allegedly broke into the couple's home shouting, where is Nancy? Where is Nancy? According to multiple reports, he had planned to detain Paul Pelosi until Speaker Pelosi got home. We're still awaiting more details from the police, but they say that this was not a, quote, random act. Keep in mind here that Nancy Pelosi, who is the Speaker of the House, is second in line for the presidency behind the vice president. She happened to be in D.C. at the time, according to Capitol Police, and she normally gets a huge security protection. But it appears that uh, there was no real security at the home as her husband, who, by the way, is 82 years old, was home alone on Thursday night into Friday. The attacker has been identified as a 42-year-old man, David DePape. According to Politico, DePape was able to get into the home, and Paul Pelosi at some point told him that he needed to use the restroom. That's where Pelosi apparently was charging his cell phone at the time. The 82-year-old then made a surreptitious call to 911 and remained connected. He then tried to speak essentially in code to alert authorities that there was a problem. Apparently, there's a lot of wrong numbers to 911. So Paul Pelosi tried to say things to the attacker while he assumed the emergency services dispatcher was on the phone uh, saying things like, what's going on? Why are you here? What are you trying to do to me? The very alert dispatcher, her name is Heather Grimes, clearly heard that something was up uh, in the background and then notified police to go do a wellness check on the home. So it appears that speaking code worked for Pelosi. The San Francisco police chief says that as authorities got there, they saw DePape using a hammer to violently assault Pelosi in the head. He was immediately apprehended by police and will be charged with attempted homicide, assault with a deadly weapon, elder abuse, burglary, and several additional felonies. I've taken a look at the social media post that David DePape has put on his accounts in recent years. He's a big believer in a whole variety of wild conspiracy theories about Holocaust denial, pedophiles in the government, claims that Democratic officials are running child sex rings. A lot of these are rampant conspiracy theories that you see on the right-wing web. We'll learn more as DePape will be arraigned in court tomorrow. Something I should add here, because I've gotten a lot of questions on Instagram about his views, conservative news networks are pointing out that DePape was more liberal, anti-Bush, anti-war back in the early 2000s, but it appears, based on his social media posts, that he swung very far right over the course of the past decade and really got deep into the far right-wing web. 
One more note here. There are also conspiracy theories. I won't get too far into it that the two of them, Paul Pelosi and uh, David Pape, were somehow in some sort of same-sex same relationship. Uh, authorities say they did not know one another. This is something that's really, again, circulating on the dark web out there among uh, some conspiracy theorists. Uh, notably, on Sunday, uh, Elon Musk, the new owner of Twitter, uh, tweeted out that theory of uh, something more uh, being in focus here, especially as you know, people are like, well, it's less than two weeks till the election. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is trying to win the election. So she staged this whole attack. So there's a lot of theories out there. There's no evidence for any of it. Notably, Elon Musk, after tweeting uh, those conspiracy theories, uh, or a link to them at least, later deleted the tweet on Sunday after a lot of criticism. That, of course, brings us to our next story. What's happening with Twitter? Well, Elon, the world's richest man, officially took over the platform, the influential news site on Friday. The uh, tech website, The Verge, reports that Twitter employees have been working late into the night and all weekend long as their managers draw up lists of team members to lay off. Musk is quickly taking over control of things. He fired the ex-CEO and a number of top executives late last week. He has since been holed up in a sectioned off area of Twitter's San Francisco headquarters over on Market Street with a fleet of Teslas parked outside and new security guards manning the entrance. According to The Verge, dozens of people from his family office, other companies, and social circles have been added to Twitter's employee directory and have gotten Twitter email addresses. Among his first orders of business has been figuring out who he wants to keep in Twitter's engineering organization. This is a huge focus for him. Remember, Twitter launched back 16 years ago, back in 2006, but really as somebody personally who's been using the platform for more than a decade, has really plateaued, hasn't really evolved. Uh, other companies have been running laps around it. Keep in mind, Twitter has somewhere between 200 and 300 million users, depending on how many of them are real. Meanwhile, Facebook, Insta, TikTok have all well surpassed a billion users. Even Snapchat, which has had its issues in terms of growth, is larger than Twitter these days. One big question for Twitter is how it's going to handle free speech. Musk has said he wants it to be totally free and not censored. That's already being tested. Keep in mind, also Elon on Thursday wrote he didn't want it to become some hellscape. An outside analysis, though, found over the weekend already that the use of the N-word and other hate speech have skyrocketed on the platform over the weekend as people are testing what they can get away with on Elon's Twitter. Already on Friday, Musk said he will appoint a board, an outside board, essentially, that'll deal with rulings on who should be banned, who should be let back on, what should the rules be. Incidentally, this is something that Facebook did in recent years that means that the executives, the CEO, doesn't have to make these calls, but you can sort of have essentially a Supreme Court uh, for the organization to make decisions. One of the big people they'll have to consider very soon is whether former President Trump who currently is on a lifetime ban from Twitter, will be let back on the platform. As I noted, Musk himself made an interesting call over the weekend as he tweeted personally out that conspiracy theory about Paul Pelosi. It was actually in response to a Hillary Clinton tweet blaming Republican rhetoric for the attack on Pelosi. Uh, Musk proceeded uh, with uh, his conspiracy theory in response to that, but then subsequently deleted it. So it'll be very interesting to see what goes down here. Uh, I had the chance over the weekend to interview Julia Borston. She's the lead tech and media reporter over at CNBC. She has spent years covering Elon Musk and has some unique insight. Let me play a bit of our conversation about all things Twitter and Elon for you right now. He's the CEO of Tesla. He's the CEO of SpaceX. He's now taken on a third company. What have you learned about him and his approach uh, to business how does Elon typically approach these things? What are you looking for? Well, what's interesting is I feel like he has a radical approach that he ends up mostly accomplishing. It just takes longer than he thinks. 
So I think back to when I interviewed him, I believe it was in 2016 for CNBC's Disruptor 50 list. The Disruptor 50 is my my baby. It's my my passion project. I've been doing it for 10 years. And he um, we named SpaceX to number one on the list. And we had him on to join join me from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange from CNBC's set there to talk about SpaceX, innovation, et cetera. And we were talking about all these different things. He looks me straight in the eye on live television. It's 2016. He says, we will be on Mars by 2020. We will be there. And I questioned him and kind of nudged him, like, it seems pretty soon. And he couldn't, he he didn't even engage in the idea that it might not happen that quickly. And, and then he went on this rant about um, AI taking over the world and robots and killer robots and yada, yada. So, and to me, I was trying to figure out, I was like, this is a live interview. I was like, is this like, is he messing with me? Is this real? Like what's actually happening here? And that you don't typically have a, a, a internal monologue of like, is this guy messing with me when you're doing a live interview with the CEO? So that is incredibly unusual. But to me, what's so interesting, if you look at the Tesla example, is he laid out this bold vision for EVs and he accomplished it. And now EVs are going to be the future. If you look at like what GM is doing, Mary Barra, she has this, this date by which all of their vehicles will be electric vehicles. So he, he's been able to accomplish things that people thought were impossible or improbable or unlikely. They just didn't happen quite as quickly as he had said they would happen. So will we get to Mars? Probably. It certainly didn't happen in 2020. Will it happen by 2030? Maybe. But I think there's something that our culture loves about this kind of visionary genius and this this shoot for the stars mentality. It doesn't always translate um, to effective day-to-day management, which is why I'm very curious to see if he brings in new CEOs, leadership, CFOs, et cetera, to, to Twitter. Um, but I also think that there's a lot of hope that he can he can really innovate this platform. And as of Friday, when he announced that he was going to have this content moderation panel, I think there's an acknowledgement that he can't just have a free speech, free for all, um, because he's relying on advertising. So it'll be interesting to see how practical he becomes now that he's actually in charge of this, this machine. Yeah, I found it notable that the message he put out to advertisers on Thursday where he said, don't worry, it's not going to be some hellscape, even though he does have these very high-minded ideas about freedom of speech. Is Somebody told me, you know, listen, liberals are more worried than they need to be. Conservatives are not going to end up being as happy as they are today, that somehow he will have to find some sort of middle ground. He'll find some middle ground and no one will be, no one will be happy. But, it, but if that's what happens, then maybe... He's doing his job. I just think fundamentally, he says he's a free speech absolutist. But there, you have to be really careful with hate speech, as we've seen recently. Mm-hmm. And if he has hate speech on the platform, advertisers will not want to be there, period. We've already seen some advertisers say they are pausing their investments in Twitter until they have more reassurance about what direction things are going in. And I think that matters. I mean, yes, Elon Musk wants to build a subscription service. Yes, he has this, this vision for a super app with lots of different things happening on this X app inclusive of Twitter, um, but he's not going to be able to get there, and certainly not going to be cre- be able to create enough alternative revenue streams for him to back away from advertising in any meaningful way. So I think that brand safety, which is the you know the industry jargon for making sure there's no offensive content on there, brand safety really matters. And I just feel like as consumers, I was reading a couple of pieces about this and. Well, I, 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 there's two interesting storylines. One, just the plateauing of Twitter for so many years, right? Like as all these other platforms have grown, just looking at the active user data, like for a Facebook and a TikTok and an Instagram, and then 
Twitter's down there in the couple hundred million range. And these guys are all, they've all surpassed a billion. And then separately, the fact that so many people want to have a happy place on social media, right? Like they want to escape the, the negativity of our reality. And so you you go to a place, I mean, for example, they're all following the lead of TikTok, right? Like TikTok delights. They love the word delight, right? It de- I've heard Adam Asari on Instagram dicks, say this it to me. It addicts and it delights. Addicts. But like, I mean, yeah. I could watch cat video, funny cat videos till the cows come home. But I do think it has a very different functionality than Twitter, right? Twitter is about right. news, headlines, conversations, debates, sometimes very angry debates. TikTok is about passing the time and having like an hour sucked up by scrolling through funny cat videos. I don't know what TikTok feeds you, but that's what both Instagram Reels and TikTok think that I want to see, which is silly cat videos. Right. So, um, or at least maybe that's what my kids want to see. But to me, they're very different use cases. I can't help but mention Pinterest. Pinterest had a killer quarter. Pinterest rose in the early days of the pandemic because people were pinning their sourdough recipes and pinning the items they wanted to redecorate their home offices. Then it plummeted because people were going out in the world again and not spending time on on Pinterest. The users declined fairly meaningfully. And then now they're on the rise again. And you know why? Because it's all about shopping. Talk about a safe, happy, happy place. Pin the products you want to buy. We're going to help you buy them. Closing the loop, helping advertisers, helping consumers who'd rather browse pictures and, and shop shop rather than see angry tweets on Twitter. But they're just, to me, incredibly different use cases. Twitter, yeah. TikTok, Pinterest, they're all for people in different states of mind who want different things. And I think that Pinterest has this big advantage right now because they're all about shopping and no one else is really doing that. In fact, even Meta is backing off from shopping right now and investing less in that. Um, but twi- you know, Twitter has to figure out what it wants to be and what it wants to do. Elon Musk has this bold vision of by 2028 having nearly a billion users. I think they have 217 million now. So he's right. very, very ambitious. Will he get there? Maybe it'll take longer than 2028 based on um, you know, how his timelines tend to be uh, longer than he anticipates. Yeah. I mean, it's, I just feel like the platform's ripe for innovation because uh, you know, I think I first joined Twitter in 2008, didn't quite know what to do with it until 2009. People were like talking about, it's funny, all these social media sites, I feel like all start with you posting what you had for lunch. And then they sort of evolve. Like I remember the Twitter, like that was what Jack Dorsey was doing in the beginning. And that was what um, Instagram was at, at the beginning. Right, Pictures of latte toast. art. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, for a decade now, it just feels like Twitter still looks the same as it did 10 years ago. So it, it really, I, I am genuinely curious as to how he evolves that. Me too. I'm curious too. There are many smart people who say this guy could have all the answers. Others say if he allows it to be that hellscape free for all, which he mentioned, then yeah. forget it. People will leave. Consumers will leave. Advertisers will leave. But I think he he must be smart enough to realize that. I'll have much more of my conversation with Julia Borston out this Wednesday. She also happens to be the author of a brand new book, When Women Lead. She interviewed more than 100 women leaders about their experiences, and she really goes into the data on why companies benefit from women in charge. It's a fascinating conversation. Again, we'll have that for you on the podcast on Wednesday. Okay, let's end here now with a story from space about a uh, viral photo that's been going around. You may have seen this photo of what appears to be the sun smiling at us. NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory snapped a portrait of the sun on Wednesday that makes it look like it has two dark eyes, a swirling round nose, and a happy smile. NASA tweeted an image of it along with the caption, say cheese. So obviously many folks are asking, is this a real image or is this just one of those, you know, fake things on the internet? Well, rest assured, NASA says this photo is completely real and there's a scientific explanation for it. 
NASA says that seen in ultraviolet light, these dark patches on the sun are known as coronal holes and are regions where fast solar wind gushes out into space. The Solar Dynamics Observatory launched back in 2010 and has essentially been hanging out in space and keeping an eye on the sun's activities ever since. You know, constantly curious about solar flares. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that the sun does that really impacts things here on Earth as well as the satellites up above. Uh, the observatory is used to study space weather, track the flares, the outbursts, etc. And on Wednesday, appears to have caught an image of what appears to be the sun smiling at us. I will link to it in the show notes. Okay, I want to thank you for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. A reminder to subscribe or follow the show uh, so you don't miss a single episode. Also, please leave us a review. Appreciate uh, all the great reviews. It continues to help us grow the show. You can also get Mo News in your inbox over with the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com. And a reminder, if you don't by now, follow me on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. I'll see everyone back here tomorrow.